0: Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown the Podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball.
1: Welcome into Downtown the Podcast, episode number 226. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you, and Downtown brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Just one guest on the podcast this week. He has been telling the story of America in his terrific films for more than four decades. We're talking about Ken Burns, who has produced wonderful films on the Civil War, uh, baseball, jazz, the Dust Bowl, the Vietnam War, country music, Muhammad Ali, and most recently, Benjamin Franklin. His newest is an amazing film called The U.S. and the Holocaust. And uh, we thought we would run that conversation uninterrupted. And so Ken Burns, on his new film
0: Cross insurance where security meets strength. Here at our sea washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome, her mild eyes command the air bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door, Emma Lazarus.
1: Thank you to Florentine Films for the clip from The U.S. and the Holocaust. It's the new film from Ken Burns, Lynn Novick, and Sarah Botstein. And here's our conversation with Ken about the film. My gosh, Ken, I had I had such a visceral reaction to this film. Yeah. Um, so many emotions uh, gutted with sadness and and anger. Uh, shocked by the parallels that we see today and, and ultimately inspired by, I guess, the strength of the human spirit. But uh, it's... It's a challenging film but uh, an absolutely remarkable one.
0: I'm I'm so glad you feel exactly that way. That's the only way I think to describe it, you know, the the combination of emotions that don't fit into neat compartments and uh, frustrations and yet also the admiration for the the heroic moments that shine through in humanity's darkest times and and then the kind of sense of obligation to ourselves that this is all sponsored by something that we see in our present day, which is anti-Semitism and racism and nativism. And there's really only one race, and that's the human race. And we are in this together. And our our success will come from our progress is come from joining together, not making others of people. And the Holocaust is, of course, the most horrendous othering of a group of people you could imagine.
1: Well, the title of film, of the film tells us what we're going to see here. It's not the story simply of the Holocaust, but in many ways the failure of America to help out.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, we, we let's just say it. Uh, we did more than any other sovereign nation, but if we'd done 10 times as much as we did in terms of letting human beings trying to flee the horror of the Nazi uh, regime, we still would have failed. And so this is, yes, about a monumental dark spot, but it's also a kind of dramatic story of how we got there. And it's interesting, almost paradoxical. It, it now feels to me in retrospect, as we're looking at reactions to this film and seeing it in with different eyes now that it's done, that by making it the U.S. and the Holocaust, it actually gives a fuller and kind of, and kind of very... Um, understandable picture of what actually happened in the Holocaust, irrespective of the United States, right? What went on? on. But then filtered through American eyes, it it gives us, you know, responsibility, skin in the game, if you will, but also uh, a horrific sense of failure and responsibility for not having responded with the better angels of our nature, but responded more with the baser instincts that most of human life, anyway.
1: There's always been anti-immigrant fervor in this country. Here in Maine, in the 1830s, we had anti-Irish riots, uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, the later 19th century. What was it that specifically led to the rise of anti-Semitism in America?
0: Well, it's been it's, it's the kind of the oldest hatred in the world because until 1948, Jews were a people without a country, and so they were they they were they benefited from seeing the world from a kind of different perspective a less nationalistic one a one that would be less tribalistic i guess is the word and as as a result they bring notions of the golden rule and of fair play and of uh, civilization if you will to the various nationalities the various tribal identities that made up the world and often they would perform things that other people didn't, and they became convenient scapegoats for demagogues and authoritarians. And so it's always helpful. You can always pick out an authoritarian because they're blaming some group Mm. for something, right? And that's the whole idea of it. It's about grievance. It's about convincing um, your fellow citizens that are like you that the reason why things aren't perfect is because of these people. And so just across time, Jews have been subject to persecution after persecution. Obviously nothing compares uh, to what happened between 1933 and 1945. Um, and so it's it's a story that has to be told. We have to understand that some of the elements, you know, that Americans are—, are are born with the same sort of impulses as well. Not all Americans, of course, but I mean, we have in our history racism and anti-Semitism and um, anti-immigrant sentiments, as you were mentioning, and also our treatment of Native Americans, and all of which was an important antecedent for us to then consider, you know, what happens when the Nazis take over, because it's not without precedent other places in the world. In fact, they study our Southern Jim Crow exclusionary laws against blacks to pass discriminatory laws against the Jews in um, in Germany. And, you know, whenever we protested at the treatment of the Jews, they'd look at us and go, as the scholar Peter Hayes says in our film, Mississippi, one word, Mississippi. Like, you treat these people, you tell them and yourselves that they are inferior. That's all we're doing here. Why are you This is a pot calling the kettle black kind of thing. And it's, you know, it's a very tough, tough thing to understand.
1: I I learned so much from this film, and and I knew a little bit about eugenics, but I had no idea of the extent uh, the fact that, as is mentioned in the film, some 60,000 Americans were sterilized without their consent before the laws were changed, it's a harrowing story. And,
0: and when, and, and Rich, the laws were, the last laws went off the books in 2014,
1: 2015.
0: Mm. I mean, it's just, it's it's shocking. And this was something embraced by conservatives, but also progressives who saw a, 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 a possible, possible positive um, thing with eugenics that you could help cure a society of its ills. But when you hear who subscribe to it, like, Theodore Roosevelt. And, you know, Alexander Graham Bell and universities and preachers and great philanthropists paid for it. And Helen Keller thought there, you know, you remember all the cuckoo, hue and cry when the Affordable Care Act came up that there would be death panels. There was no such thing. There has not been such thing. But the Helen Keller quote ought to be shocking in the extreme in our film, because she, deaf, blind and mute, is proposing panels of doctors that would decide whether a baby would live or die. And, you know, the the unbelievable thing is that she would probably be chosen for that, for extermination, right? I mean, eugenics is something that was born in Britain, kind of popularized in the United States. And then I guess you could say that the Germans just took it and perfected it in the most ghastly and horrible way. With the experiment on children and and, uh, handicapped people and um, others, uh, you know, different religious Jehovah's Witnesses, gay men, uh, the Roma and Sinti people who were derogatorily called gypsies, you know, know, just the endless experiment and the Jews. You know, and it's just there were there were nine million Jews in Europe in 1933 and in 1945, two out of three, two out of three were dead, murdered.
1: How much damage did the Johnson-Reed Act of 1924 do to the cause?
0: That's a wonderful question, Rich. Um, it's it's central to understanding this. Um, we'd had mostly open borders between, say, 1870. Uh, even before that, uh, people just got on ships and came. Uh, mostly open borders, 1870 to 1920. And uh, with the exception of the Chinese Exclusionary Act, which was in eighteen eighty-two, 1882, I believe, or eighty-four, um, we hadn't really delineated anything. So the Johnson Reed Act was basically an attempt to follow some of the language we hear today of of extremists, of you know a worry that Protestants were going to be replaced, that there were these uncouth people coming. Just as as you pointed out in the history of Maine, there's you know there was a time when the Irish were discriminated against, and Catholics of, of any sort were, and, and then there was an assimilation. Then you found another, uh, you know, enemy to have. And so basically the Johnson-Reed Act sort of used eugenics in a way to suggest that there were superior races, and it created a quota system that basically favored Northern Europeans, uh, what the Germans would call Aryans. This is all fiction, right? You understand this mm. is all there's no – the biological distinction of race just does not exist in, in, in the way that people were trying to do it, categorizing different sorts of people, human beings or human beings or human beings. And so basically they limited the quotas on the countries that would have more Catholics, southern and central, and eastern Europeans were, were excluded in favor of northern uh, Europeans. Um, Scandinavians and and Irish and British and Germans, and, um, and they were considered the more, they were Protestant, and they were considered for the most part, and they were considered like desirable stuff, and so there it would equal the balance. And though the Johnson-Reed Act never named Jews, the countries that had the minuscule quotas were those with the largest Population of Jews like um, Poland and what is now Ukraine and Lithuania and and Latvia and Belarus and Hungary and Romania, right? And so you've just got built-in discrimination, and then you have this, the you know, this gigantic humanitarian crisis, and there's nothing to be done. I do want to say an important thing. This was the law of the land in the United States. There was no way right. the president could say, "Hey." Let these people in. Let that vote in. Let this pass. But during that time, the Johnson Reed Act was neither expanded nor contracted. You know what I mean? They didn't right. relax the quotas. They tried to, and they didn't. They didn't increase. You know, they 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 didn't um, tighten the quotas. So you 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 it, it just was there as this monumental excuse, an obstacle for the United States to behave in a humanitarian fashion. And if you add to that all of the resentments that grow with economic dislocation, and in this case, the Depression, the greatest crisis, you know, economic crisis in the history of the world, you have people thinking, I don't want to let anybody in that's going to take my job, or at least that's what the demagogues would say. But you had prominent industrialists like Henry Ford promulgating just the most racist anti-Semitic tracts. Taking the the famous Russian hoax, the complete hoax called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, that was posited a kind of Jewish conspiracy to take over the world, just made up fiction and printed it, and published in books and it was translated into languages around the world, including German. I mean, it was it, it fired people up um, in a way that just exaggerated it. In the face of the depression, you could have um, an anti-Semitic radio priest with an audience of millions, Father Coughlin from Detroit, um, talking about the money changers and yeah. you know all the code word for the, for Jews that had been used, and all with kind of absurd, irrational uh, fears, and you know, uh, and then you have somebody like Charles Lindbergh who is you know arguably the second most famous person in America after President Roosevelt. Um, who became who was a virulent anti-Semite and who became head of the America First, which was an attempt to keep the United States out of war in large measure because most of the people who ran it were very sympathetic to the Germans and thought there was no chance for Britain or any other democracy of Western Europe to survive. And uh, they were kind of hedging their bets.
1: We're talking with Ken Burns on downtown. You mentioned President Roosevelt, and that's an important part of the story. Uh, historians, I think, have have judged him pretty harshly for what was perceived as a lack of response. We learn in the film that he, he wanted to do more and, and did all he could, but was a bit hamstrung by uh, not only the laws, but his own administration and the American public, whether it was groups like the, the DAR and the American Legion, or whether it was just public sentiment that, that felt badly for what was going on, but at the same time did not want to take more Jewish immigrants.
0: Yeah, it, Roosevelt's an interesting lightning rod, because I think you've got such a singular figure of evil on the other side in Adolf Hitler that people want to, even scholars want to, equate this. You know, Roosevelt was not a kid. He had to operate under the Johnson-Reed Act. He could not do unilaterally some things. He wanted to do stuff. I'd fall halfway between the two descriptions. Um, he could. He could have done more. He could have shouted louder. But he was also working the machinery of government, knowing full well about the sentiments of the Congress, completely opposed to this, uh, the sentiments of the American people, completely opposed to this, but knows that he has to spend his time working to um, revoke the Neutrality Acts. And we look now from our position of superiority and go, well, you should have been dealing with this great humanitarian crisis. If he'd not been able to revoke the Neutrality Acts, we might be speaking German. I mean, I'm not trying to joke with you. Mm. We made our film on World War II that came out in 2007. We interviewed a fellow who grew up in Waterbury, Connecticut, and he was Jewish, and he was um, in the liberation of Western Europe, and he was interviewing a German prisoner who was a bureaucrat who'd been sent into uniform. They'd run out of soldiers, and his job was to take over where this guy, our guy, Ray Leopold, lived in Connecticut. He knew central Connecticut better than Ray Leopold knew it. He spoke perfect, unaccented English. And they had a cadre of people determined to take over every section of the United States. So if Roosevelt can't do the thing that he believes is the number one thing, to defeat this person, a lot of this other stuff is not moot. It's still an ongoing humanitarian crisis, but I don't want to let him off the hook. I want to say he could have done more. His wife is whispering in his ear. His wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, is right on just about everything. And she is trying desperately to have a much more, you know, to broadcast even further the atrocities of the Germans. And that may have helped. It may have, you know, um, given chances for more people to get out. Uh, but but you don't know. It, it is a failure across the board. And we're all culpable. We're all responsible.
1: Roosevelt would uh, tell supporters that the best way to rescue the Jews was to win the war. Yeah. But, but by 1942, when Edward R. Murrow was reporting on what was going on, when Gerhard Rigner uh, shared what he had discovered in many ways, was it already too late because most of the damage had already been done?
0: Well, let's see. By the time we get boots on the ground in Italy, right, in 43 two-thirds to three-quarters of the Jews of, that are going to be murdered have been murdered. And by the time we have an air base in Foggia able to, say, make a bombing run to Auschwitz, there's a whole other question, too, whether you bomb Auschwitz mm-hmm. or whether you'd bomb the rail lines with our imprecise bombing and whether you were willing to take the public relations hit that would come from – Learning that we weren't, uh, our soldiers, our airmen were not dying in the service of of the war, but in liberating Jewish um, uh, concentration uh, uh, death camp um, uh, occupants. You know, it's it's a huge thing. But by, by by the time we could get an airplane there, are three quarters of the Jews in Europe uh, who are going to be murdered have been murdered by the by the Nazi regime and their cohorts. So it is just one of those. Horrific things. I think the scholar Deborah Lipsat says in two different places in the film, um, the, exactly right. First, she says the obvious, the time to stop a Holocaust is before it happens. Right. That's why we need to study this period. You just, you know, as Daniel Mendelssohn says in our film, don't kid yourself. This is possible. There is no bottom, he says, to uh, what human beings, to human depravity. So you just you know you have to guard against this. You have to protect your institutions. It has to be about civilization and not about the tribal instincts. But then, very late in the film, Deborah says, "Maybe if we had yelled louder about it." And this is why I was holding Roosevelt's feet to the fire a little bit more than than you were, is if we'd yelled louder about it. If we'd been able to get people out of those refugee cities like you know Lisbon or um or casablanca or or other places where the refugees could still get out once hitler was the master of of europe um it might have been possible for us to to save more people than we did uh but you know this is not humanity's nor the united states uh you know finest hour
1: the testimony in the film of those who were there is so incredible uh guy stern who was sent to america Alone at age 15, a Saul Messenger, whose family tried to get out on the St. Louis, uh, Susie and Joseph Hilsenrath. And, and his, I, I think the most uh, the most powerful moment of the film for me was his remembrance of seeing the Statue of Liberty.
0: Yeah. So, you know, in Hitchcock, they always the students of Alfred Hitchcock's movies always said that he had what he called a MacGuffin. This thing, this object that recurs, that becomes the focus of something. In our in, in our film, three parts, six hours plus, um, our MacGuffin is the Statue of Liberty. Mm. The symbol, we think, of a country that welcomes immigrants, but also a symbol that many people also felt should guard against anybody coming in. So each one of the chapters, the three chapters, is named after a, a, a phrase in the poem by Emma Lazarus. The Golden Door being the first one, you know, the, the the Statue of Liberty occurs and reoccurs throughout the film. And so one of the most important moments is that when Susie and Joseph Hilsenrath finally, finally, finally they're sent by their parents alone to France to escape the trouble. The father then gets out and is able to get the mother and the, and the baby infant son back out, and they're... You know, one step ahead of the Nazis in Paris, and then in Versailles, and then into Vichy France, and then finally, their father is able to to get them out because he's in America. They come and they're on a boat out of Lisbon called the Sao pinta and they were, mm. you know, housed in. They said, "You can come up at 6 a.m. because we're going to come into New York Harbor." And the fog lift, lifted, like uh, Susie said, like the like the curtain at the opera. And then Joseph just describes it and he breaks down, you know, and here you are looking at an old man who you're really actually looking at as a kid, a kid relieved that he will have a life ahead of him. And I think this is where we need to stop. When we say six million, it's an opaque number, Rich. We just, right. it doesn't mean anything. But if you take people as Daniel Mendelssohn does, his great uncle Schmiel Yeager from a Little... Provincial town in eastern Poland named Bolochow, and his wife and their four daughters. And he finds out what Daniel calls the particularities of their death. Only one died from gas. You go, What? What? Only one? How, you know, he discovers how each one of them died. And all of a sudden, you begin to loosen a grip and you begin to see that all of those people are like a missing limb you know that still itches that still pains us that we are aware of the lost potentiality of human life what cure for cancer was not invented what symphony wasn't written what garden wasn't tended what farm field didn't yield what child wasn't raised with love what what was the next generation that's missing that's that's what you have to do When you talk about this, if it's just about numbers, if it's just about the horrible, mangled, naked bodies with bulldozers, all you've done is kind of participated in a kind of Holocaust porn. But if you make people understand, these are human lives. I mean, one of the most poignant things, one of the last things we did is we added in three different places in the last two episodes just letters from three different people who are basically saying what I'll give you. One example of a letter, a guy writes to a friend and he said, I want you to have this letter because I want the world to know that someone named David Berger lived once lived. He knows he's going to his death and he's just wanting, he wants to say what all human beings wake up and say, I am right. And so it's really important for us, as we love to back the dump truck up and show the, the statistics and this and the 60 million killed or the 55 million killed and the six million Jews that were killed in the. It, these are all human beings whose lives are as were as important to them as ours are to us, and that we need to restore an essential humanity. To their story and realize that the great crime of othering, of making someone who is dif- seemingly slightly different from you other, is the mark. You know, I, I, I think I've even talked to you about this, Rich, before, that I realized that I had had the great pl- privilege for the last 50 years of making films about the U.S., but I've also been making films about us. that is to say, the lowercase two-letter plural pronoun, all the intimacy of us and all of the majesty and uh, complexity and the contradiction and the controversy of the U.S. And what I've learned over that half a century is that there's only us. There's no them. And if anybody tells you there are them, run away. There's only one race, and that is the human race. It's just where we began this conversation. That's it. The problems begin when we start making the distinctions, and there is a tyranny, not only for the person who is imposed on, but there is a trap for the people who believe this, for the conspiracy uh, uh, buffs, for the people who, who, who latch on to the protocols of the elders of Zion, or the people who think this or think that about other people or other parties or other things like that. And we have, as a democratic society, an obligation to protect the institutions that we've created over 245 plus years. You know, my last film was on Benjamin Franklin. And when the doors of the uh, what is now Independence Hall, it was then the, the Pennsylvania Assembly, was thrown open after that hot summer of 1787, where they all the compromises were made, some very tragic compromises for enslaved people in the United States, for native people in the United States, for women. Um, nonetheless, you know, a woman whose rights were not respected walked up to Dr. Franklin and said, What have you created, a monarchy or a republic? And he said, A republic if you can keep it. And those words mean so much now because of the great crises that we've been through, the Civil War, the Depression, and World War II, the greater crisis is right now, where the crisis of confidence in our own democratic institutions, manufactured by demagogues, very similar to other periods in, in history, but unprecedented in the United States, are, are threatening the very institutions. And Daniel Mendelsohn, who found his, his great uncle's story, and always pr- and pursued it doggedly to give a face to six of the six million, um, Says, don't kid yourself. You know, mm-hmm. those people in the sepia pictures of long ago, we think, oh, they're not like us. They're, they're exactly like us. And that, you know, anything can happen, and it becomes incumbent upon all of us to just work, hard as we can to project those better angels to to be members of a human race and not to make a distinction of 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 making somebody else the other
1: as a history teacher i've said to students for years that we have a short memory as people this is not ancient history we have people in our community who still uh, bear the marks from their time as survivors in the camps what do you hope young viewers take away from this film
0: well, you know, we're storytellers, and you'd never want a lecture, but we I've spent my entire professional life, Rich, as you know, making films that go to PBS first. And in this case, also, we worked you in know, association with the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., who also has spent their entire existence trying to reach out to students as, as PBS. And so it isn't just the broadcast of the film that matters to us, it's the subsequent educational outreach that gives us a chance to tell these stories, particularly now as those survivors are are dying away. Steven Spielberg's Shoah Foundation has 54,000 taped testimonies. God bless him for that effort. There's even a holographic record of some of those people in which you can go into certain spaces and ask them questions, and there's not a question that those holographic AI. It doesn't. You're sitting there looking at a survivor, but particularly now as there's a resurgence of denial, as there's an, uh, an upsurge in places that don't want to teach uncomfortable history. Well, right. Wait, if you're the most exceptional country on earth and you don't want to be toughest on yourself, how do you remain exceptional? Well, the answer is you don't. You don't. You become unexceptional if you're unwilling to face. I mean, if the coach loses 52 to nothing and uh, says we were terrific today, that coach doesn't last. He says, "Oh, we really sucked on defense and offense, and you know we turned over the ball too many." That you say this is who it up. We need to teach our history, and teaching about the Holocaust is as important as the accomplishment, say, of putting a man on the moon. Uh, teaching the Holocaust and understanding. The roots of racism and anti Semitism and nativism and anti immigrant sen- sentiment around the world in the United States are as important as understanding the extraordinary achievements of, of the United States, of which there are many. And you could list them. I, 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 could def- I would say that for all its glaring mistakes, for all the problems that it has, I would defy someone to come up with another institution that has done, beginning with the The Declaration, flawed as it was, the Constitution, flawed as it was, the Bill of Rights, the Land Grant College Act, the Homestead Act, the Transcontinental Railroad, the child labor laws, Social Security, labor's right to organize, the GI Bill, the Interstate Highway, the Space Program, the Affordable Care. These are extraordinary accomplishments that, that cannot be taken away and won't be taken away. But you do not diminish the, the vibrancy of the tapestry by lifting up and sweeping out some of the dirt and saying, this is also us, too. I'm sure you were shocked to see me. I'm sure as a history teacher you'd seen it before, the footage and the still photographs of thousands and thousands of Klansmen in full regalia mm. marching down Independence Avenue in our capital or lining the steps invited to the capital of the United States. Uh, this is a racist, a homegrown terrorist organization, like the like Al Qaeda or ISIS, right? And uh, it expanded and got grew in popularity because it was not just racist, but it was anti-Catholic and it was uh, anti-Semitic and anti-immigrant. So. It, it, it enjoyed an unbelievable resurgence right after the First World War, just as the time we began to shut those golden doors and and pass the Johnson-Reed Act, which would so severely limit the immigration that had once flown for, freely, um, allowed people from everywhere to come to the United States.
1: Well, Ken, uh, thanks to you and, and Lynn and Sarah and everyone on the team for, I think, an incredibly important work. And thanks, as always, to you uh, for talking with us about it today.
0: It's been my pleasure. Thank you. It's very important to know this is not my film alone. The script by Jeffrey Ward is spectacular. And my co-directors, Lynn Novick, who you you um, referred to, and Sarah Botstein are equally responsible for this film. And thank you so much for giving me an opportunity to talk about it.
1: Ken Burns, The U.S. and the Holocaust premieres on September 18th on PBS. And our thanks, as always, to Ken uh, for making the time for us uh, to talk about it. It's It's a breathtaking series and uh, not easy to watch, but an incredibly important film. And I hope you'll check it out when it premieres on PBS. That'll do it for us this week on Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.